Thank you. You know, the first service, he said, an old friend. And I'm not old, am I? No. Okay. Hey, it's great to be back, Mount Helena. Everybody online, hello. We miss you. And wow, this is great. We're having, <laughs> what a year, huh? You say, it's a year to remember. No, it's, maybe it's a year to forget, but we'll never forget it. And good things are happening. And so, uh, yeah, get the book. I'm just so burdened to see God's words fulfilled. How many know, if you had a prophecy before 2020, God knew? So you can go back and say, come on, God, you knew. So there might, maybe there's just something in a prophetic word that you got within the last even five years that might reference something that you've got to go through right now, and God will help you get through it. So go back and look and steward, and let's keep fighting. Amen? All right. Nation's prophetic perspective. Let's get a perspective on what God is doing, not just in Helena or Montana or the United States. What's God doing in the nations? And I want to hopefully, let's zoom out this morning. Let's get a bigger picture of what God's up to. And there's some things we have to kind of put in place in order to have this right perspective. And so um, we're standing in such a, a moment of time, we have to pay attention to our standing. We have to pay attention to our operations God is weighing us, believe it or not. He's weighing us not according to external operations, what's going on. In the, God's weighing the believer continuously on what's going on in here. We're being, Christ is being formed in us. And just in case you didn't know, crisis is always an accelerator. You've got more Christ in you now in November than you did in March. That's good news. Turn to somebody and say, I do? It's like, I, I do? Yeah, you do. Listen, we're in an upward call in Christ. And you're coming... Up. Everything God is doing in your life is bringing you toward Christ. So we can't forget that. But when God measures us, he looks at something what I would call a core assumption. He's looking at the core assumptions that you and I have inside of us all the time. What is a core assumption? Well, a core assumption is an assumption that is a belief, some kind of a conviction you have but it's so internalized as a fact that it becomes kind of a unquestioned behavior in your life. You don't question it. It just runs in you all the time. You don't question it. It's a behavior. It's an assumption. I'll give you an example. You're all sitting in these nice Mount Helena chairs. They're comfortable. If you were to all stand up, and then I'd say, okay, that was great. Now all sit down again, like we do in the Episcopal Church. And we stand up, sit down, kneel. We just we're always have got a lot of good exercise in the Episcopal Church. But... Um, you would sit down in the chair that you just got up from and never stop to think, I wonder if this chair is going to hold me up. You wouldn't turn the chair upside down, jiggle the legs, take your screwdriver out, screw it. It's like, okay, now I can sit down in this chair because I'm not sure. I just was sitting at it, but you know, you never know. No, it's what we call a core assumption, and we rerun those things all day long. You get out in your car, you put your key in, or you push your button. It's like, I got a core assumption that if I close the door, push the button, seatbelt on, boom, it's going to start, and I'm going to take off. These things run in us all the time. Unquestioned behavior. Unquestioned. We don't question it. Um, do you know that the world is constantly tutoring us in core assumptions? It's constantly putting out its mantra, trying to teach us and tutor us in how we're to assess what's going on in the earth, an earthly reality that comes from Babylon itself. And you know what? I'm finding that um, the way that the church is um, going we have to examine those core assumptions because that is the platform that's on the inside of us, okay, on how you view world events. Your core assumptions help change your view on certain things, the way you see what's going on in the earth, what's going on in the world, even the way you read your Bible, your assumptions about God, your assumptions about yourself. 
the economy, the future, all these things. So I want to address what I would call the key core assumption you must have running in you in this hour like never before. And it's simply this, the fact that when it comes to the nature of God, God is sovereign. God is absolutely sovereign. If you don't have that running in you in this hour, <laughs> it's going to throw off, it's going to skew the way you observe and the way that you react to world events. So what does it mean when we say God is sovereign? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, Ephesians 1, 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That is a big statement of his sovereignty. God works all things according to the purpose and the counsel of his own will. He doesn't need our advice. He doesn't counsel with anybody else. He does everything according to the counsel of his own will. So sovereignty is this unchallenged rule that God exercises. It's unchallenged. You can't challenge it. God's perfectly autonomous and very comfortable being so. It would also be the idea of having supreme power that's unlimited. There's nothing higher. Total ascendancy. In Ephesians, also chapter 4, where we understand, you know, the fivefold ministry and, you know, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, verse 11, when he ascended, he gave gifts unto men. But if you back up just a little bit in the 10th verse, it says this, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, far above all the heavens. We just sang it, actually. I don't know if you were paying attention. Sometimes I'll, okay, I'll admit it. Sometimes I'm singing a song and I'm thinking of something else. All right, I admit it. Let's all confess. Words are on the screen. Your mouth's moving. We can't tell now whether you're singing or not. It's kind of safe. Got a mask on. It's like, are they singing? I don't know. So the worship police are been defunded, so we're not, they're not going to be checking on whether you're singing or not, okay, because you got a mask on. But the point is, are you engaging in worship? And those words mean anything, and we just sang about there's nothing higher. There's nothing greater. God is highly ascended. There's nothing higher than God. So when we look at this idea of the sovereignty of God, it's unlimited, and it means there's an absolute reality behind his sovereignty, and there's no such thing as being partly sovereign. He's not partly sovereign. He's not sovereign on Sundays. And then Mondays, you know, he kind of just kind of backs off the human race, gives us a little breathing space. No, he's not like that. He is almighty over all. He's not partly mighty. Can you at least nod your head? If you have a mask on, can you just blink your eyes and go? Yeah, he's almighty over all, or he's not mighty at all. He's mighty, okay? Nothing in creation is outside of his wisdom. Nothing in creation is outside of what he's superintending and observing. And so we have to have that running on the internal platform so that we can have a proper perspective when we what? When we pray. When we react, when we read our Bible, when we react to your favorite news feed. You better have an internal core assumption that God is sovereign no matter what I read, no matter what I hear. And the concept is not new, but you know, I've been around a little bit, a long few years, JR was saying, a few years, but also this last nine months I have been touching a lot of churches virtually. I've been visiting some churches, thankfully, but I want to tell you, sometimes the actions and the reactions of a lot of believers when it comes to evaluating the events that are happening in our world right now would contradict <laughs> and actually actually go against 
accepting the fact, is God really in charge? Is God really sovereign in this hour of the church in 2020? Is he still the same sovereign God? And we have to have the capacity to fully accept that. The number one thing I want for you today, fully accept the fact that the Bible declares, and I could give you tons of scripture, but God is sovereign. And so to help you understand that, um, we're going to look at some of the wrong concepts of sovereignty to help us understand what it really is. And so one of, the, one of the wrong concepts of understanding the sovereignty of God is that the sovereignty of God is like an action that God takes, like a veto facility, when he doesn't want something to happen. Something's happening, God's going, oh boy, this could get bad. I better step in and veto this action. Like the President of the United States would have a bill come across his desk and go, nah, we're not going to let that happen. Uh, kind of a last minute Last resort, last moment, midnight hour action, and God steps in and stops it just before the ultimate disaster. And you go, oh, God sovereignly moved at the last second. We love to just kind of give God that last second glory. Up to that, he sits helpless in the heavens, you know, until he takes out his holy pen, takes out his veto and goes, no, not now. And I go, oh. That was a sovereign act of God. You know, God doesn't sit helpless in the heavens waiting for the enemy to go just too far and then says, now I'm going to step in. Up to now, either we blame each other and say, well, there wasn't enough prayer or they didn't pray the right words or we, you know, we, we come up with all of our excuses of why, but at the end, God's sovereign. And you know what? If you don't grasp that, <laughs> it's going to skew even your prayer life. And it's going to mess you up and try to evaluate how God is sovereignly moving, even in the nations. So use your delete button. Everybody have a delete button this morning? Yep, take it out and delete that kind of thinking. God is not up there using veto facilities in heaven. A second wrong concept of sovereignty would be the fact that God's sovereignty is then a counter response to the enemy's actions. That God's up there playing defense all the time. He's kind of like a chess game, and the enemy's got this strategy, and he, he keeps putting another, oh, i got to counter that move. Oh, i got to counter that move. And all this stuff's come flooding at God, and he's constantly playing defense. You know, we might think that there's actually two battles going on, and we're taking bets to see who's going to win at the end. Then you go to the back of the book and go, well, I guess God's going to win, but I don't know how he's going to do it. So we, we might lose the 13th, 14th round, but in the 15th round, he's going to come through. Delete. <laughs> don't think that way because you know what? I'm going to startle you with the thought that actually in sovereignty, there is no war. Wait a minute. You just wrote a book on waging warfare with your prophecy. Yeah, I believe in waging warfare. Oh, there's battles. In fact, in in the book, I talk about the five battlefields of the prophetic. There's battlefields. We'll have to battle for the outcome. But see, that's the whole deal. God has an ordained outcome for everything. Blink or do something, will you? Just like, like God has an ordained outcome for everything. He's not making it up as we go. It's not open theism, as some would try to purport. This is something that God is almighty. Okay, I'm going to blow your mind. You ready for this? Here we go. I got to just throw this out. Isaiah 46, um, turn, swipe, or memorize Isaiah 46, verse 9 through 11. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. If you're under 20, this is a Bible. Oh, Johnny, you've got, that's a Bible in your hand. Cool. So swipe over, turn over. Isaiah 46, verse 9 through 11. For I am God and there is no other. Didn't that we just sing about that? There's nothing higher, there's nothing greater. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. We're like, right on. Watch this statement. Declaring the end 
from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. I will accomplish all my purpose. That's called an ordained outcome. God already knows the end from the beginning. Who can say that? Only God. So you understand there is an ordained outcome. You know what the battle is? You know what your battle is? You know what my battle is? Agreeing with his outcome. We don't always like the outcome that God has. Peter didn't like it. No, Lord. God forbid you should go to the cross and die. Oh, I'm not going to let it happen. Sorry, Pete. There's an ordained outcome called salvation of the world. Don't mess it up. Jesus was a little stronger. Oh, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Pete, what? Satan's trying to influence you. You can't stop God's ordained outcome. Our battle is agreeing with it. So that's a wrong concept that God is only up there making countermeasures against the enemy. A third wrong concept of sovereignty would be that his sovereignty only suits the purposes of the church. Oh, God's sovereign over the believers. He's sovereign over the church. Yeah. But, you know, the world's going crazy. And who, I mean, they're so wicked and they're so, oh, my gosh, God must be up there just having migraines going, I can't believe people are doing this. God's been around a long time. And he is over the affairs of every nation, every people, every tongue, every tribe, every Babylonian pagan ruler, God is sovereign. If you don't believe me, just ask Nebuchadnezzar. Go ahead, click on, click on the icon. Nebuchadnezzar, click, greatest ruler, most powerful man, sitting in his grass, eating it like a cow with his, what? How'd that happen? That wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's idea. God just went, you think you're so powerful, Neb? Enjoy the grass. He's not restricted. This will blow your mind just a little bit. May I blow your mind a little bit? Isaiah 28. Isaiah's great mentor. If you really want to understand more of the sovereignty of God, watch the way Isaiah describes some of his things. And here's one of them that always gets me. In Isaiah 28, verse 21. Isaiah 28, 21. The Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim and in the valley of Gibeon. He will be roused. He'll rise up. God's getting roused, I think. Why is all this happening, Clem, in the earth? What's going on? God's getting roused. That's what's happening. God's getting roused. And watch what happens when he gets roused. He says he's roused to do his deeds. And then Isaiah says, strange are his deeds. Oh, you see that? Oh, God's getting, and you might be going, yes, that's what we're, God, come on, God, fight back. Come on, God, make it all better. Make it go away. God, do something. Rouse yourself. He goes, okay, I'll rouse it, but I'm going to do it my way, and it's going to seem strange to you. Strange are his deeds. And God is roused to work his work. Alien is his work. You understand that when God starts moving in the earth, man's first kind of uh, response, the way that we evaluate God sometimes is, that's strange. Oh, yeah. That's kind of alien to the way I would do it. Oh, yeah. That's our God. Theologians come up with a nice Latin phrase to describe it. It's called the opus alienum. Alien works. Strange works. That's God. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, an opus alienum are the works of God that seem, that seem, say to, it seems, say it inside your mask, whisper it. It seems. It seems to mitigate against his character. But it is, nevertheless, an act of his decree as he'll use a secondary means to carry out his divine will. And if I can crystallize that into one word, it would be this. The cross. Two words. The cross. 
See, the cross was such an alien work. It makes no sense. Why would you do that, God? God does something. He uses pagan rulers. He uses wicked men ordains them to carry out these wicked acts against his only begotten son because it was an act of his decree by which he uses secondary means. Boom. Opus alienum. (laughs) That's exactly what Isaiah said. Strange is his deed. Alien is his work. I sound like Yoda. Strange is his deed. Alien is his work. That's our God. He's strange. He's alien. It's like it doesn't make sense to me. Dr. David Lamb is an Old Testament professor of theology, wrote a book, not too long ago, for all of his first-year students studying the Old Testament. And the book's title was called, God Behaving Badly. Isn't that a great book? That was bold on his part. Hey, God, I'm going to write a book about you behaving badly. Now, God knew him, so he says, I won't smite you, but, you know, you better explain yourself. No. Why did he write that? Because first-year seminary students studying the Old Testament and really getting in there and looking at God's behavior... They're like, is God a racist? Is he, is he like genocide? What is, what? So let's excuse God in the Old Testament and say he was just having a bad day. He was having a bad era. God behaving badly. And then along comes Jesus. Whew, thank goodness he came and rescued God's character and became a nice God. The God of the New Testament. You know, salvation for all and healer and all that. But you know what? <laughs> it's not God behaving badly. God is sovereign. So one more Isaiah moment. Can you take one more? Can you take one more horse pill? <clears throat> Swallow Isaiah 47 or 45 verse 7. Isaiah 45 verse 7. And we see God saying wild statements like this, strange. I form the light and I create darkness. Any questions? Are we okay with that? Sunrise, sunset, night, day. We good with that? It's like, yeah, that's God. He's heavens and earth. Good. Watch this. <laughs> I make well-being. And I create calamity. God takes all the credit. No, no, he never said, I create light, I create darkness, I make well-being. But the devil, he makes things, he creates calamity, and I don't know what to do with him. I should have never made him in the first place. I make well-being, I create calamity. I am the Lord, I do all these things. You better get your (laughs) head around that somehow and realize God is sovereign. God uses pagans as instruments of his holy will. God exercises control over evil rulers and evil nations. God does it all. He always has. He always will. We better be a people that accept that and grab hold of it and realize, God, (laughs) I want to be in your plan. I want to follow your holy will. Prayer, you see, this this will affect your prayer life purposefully because as Andrew Murray so well described, prayer is simply man tying his will into the will of God. You don't realize that that's part of your prayer life is you submitting and tying your will into the sovereign will of God. Jesus had to do it. He had to do it in the garden. Father, if there's any way out of this, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not my will, thy will be done. Jesus had to tie his will into the will of the Father. And sovereignty was not an issue for Jesus. (laughs) He knew God was in control. The last misconception, possibly, of what sovereignty is, is that the sovereignty of God is an agent, of course, of beneficial outcome to me. When God does something that benefits me, he's sovereign. 
Any testimonies this morning? Oh, yeah, I just want to give glory to God because, you know, I prayed for this, and, and then God answered my prayer, and I got my way, and I got what I wanted. He's sovereign. He's so sovereign. What if you don't get your way? What if it doesn't come out the way you actually prayed it? What if it's an outcome that isn't beneficial to you or your circumstance? Is he still sovereign? Three people think he is. Well, we're going to get a majority before we leave. <laughs> he is. So, a picture of sovereignty would come again from Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. Here's a picture. Just, I want you to picture this like we do in worship as we're singing. And we, we, had, we, all, we had a little, couple of little uh, kind of photos ahead of time to see sovereignty in some of our worship this morning. Well done, Chris. Well done. Very, you're right on. Isaiah 6, 1, a picture of sovereignty. Watch. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This is a picture of God's sovereignty. In the year King Uzziah died, created an earthly crisis. Because, see, Israel had lived 30, 50 years of peace, beneficial outcomes. Everything was good. Prosperity. Yeah, it was all good. And now, crisis. Why? The king has died. The good king has died. There's going to be evil. There's going to be trouble. Changing national leaders. Crisis. What did Isaiah say? I wasn't looking at that. I was looking at a different throne. I saw the Lord seated on his throne. It's a throne, everybody. It's not a chair. It's a throne representing what? Sovereign authority and rulership. Certainty. Undisputed ascendancy. That's what he saw. That's what we need to see. Our eyes better be on the throne of God. And he says, the train of his robe filled the temple. What's that mean? Unlimited reach. His authority is unlimited. You can't stop it. No nation can stop it. No border control on the authority of God. And this is the posture that we have to have as we deal with crisis and we deal with disaster. And we have to be prophetic in the way we, we poise ourselves before God and divest ourselves of the wrong concepts of who God is, what his rulership is, how limited it is. If we put a limit on it, divest that. God's involvement in the affairs of this planet, how far does it go? All the way, baby, all the way. And that's where you got to start in your prayer life with God. When you approach him, as, a, or as Hebrews 4 says, come boldly to the throne of grace in your time of need and obtain mercy and find help. That's your posture. So you can't be perplexed by the disasters that are happening and unfolding, and they are not going to go away in any rapid function where we say, oh, finally, a beneficial outcome, peace, peace, let there be peace. Boldness in this hour. God is changing us. God is putting something in us. God is creating a boldness that's not, not personality-driven. Don't you love the early church? The way they describe the early baby church, when the first crisis came, the leaders get locked up in jail. There's persecution from the religious people. It says, and they, they said, Lord, grant to your servants boldness that we can proclaim the word. They weren't moved by crisis. They weren't moved by this. And boldness is not personality. You know what it is? It's certainty of his sovereignty. That's where you get boldness from. That should change the way you operate, change the way you pray, change the way you witness. Speaking of witness, we go to the New Testament and apply this. Let's apply it to what Jesus said upon his departure from planet Earth. The last thing he said before he ascended into heaven, and he comes to his disciples, Acts chapter 1, 
Could you imagine having one more question while Jesus is still with you? I mean, he's, <laughs> he's taught for three years. You've followed him around. You've seen signs, wonders, miracles. He gets crucified. God raises from the dead. He walks around planet Earth for 40 days. He's with them. All these things are happening. He says, okay, guys, I got to go. Okay, I got time for one more question. One question and one question only. What's your one question? They go, well... So, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Can I put it in modern vernacular? Are you going to make Israel great again? That was the only thing on their mind. Can you imagine that? That's, that's all they were thinking about? After all they'd seen, heard, been taught? You've got to be kidding me. I mean, their country was a colony of Rome. It was under Rome's imperial power. And you know what they wanted before Jesus left the planet? They wanted God to intervene in politics. They wanted God to intervene in Rome's oppression and power. That's what their big hope was. Behind all that Jesus did, all his sermons, everything he did. And they had no idea at this point that they were about to be scattered to the nations in persecution. They had no idea what was coming. Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus had to redirect their thinking and redirect their attention away from politics and national restoration. That's the only thing that was on their mind. And those words that he spoke, which are coming up here, are just as relevant today as they were then. Watch what Jesus says. His answer, Acts 1, verse 7, he said... It's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority. Boom. He hits them with a, he smacks them with sovereignty. Because they were insecure. They were still in fear. They're like, what about Rome? You're leaving. What are we going to do? Are you going to restore the kingdom now? Are you going to get rid of Caesar and Rome and the whole political system that's so oppressive? And Guys, what? It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set. God's got it all set. It's set. By his own authority. But <laughs> you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria until all the ends of the earth. That's his response. So let's take that apart. What's the first thing he did? He went sovereign on them immediately. See, he said, There's a core assumption running in you boys, and somehow <laughs> you didn't quite get it after three years of preaching and demonstration. God is sovereign. So one more time, he hits them with sovereignty. He pushes them away from national and political focus. And they're directed to God's sovereign rulership in the earth. Because the authority of God never diminishes. Kings and kingdoms, they come and go. Empires come and go. He wanted the disciples to understand the limitations of political power in nations and empires are flexible, and God ordains them. God raises them up, and God brings them down. He says, but this kingdom will never perish. It'll never go down, it'll always be on the rise, it'll never diminish, it remains constant through time. And so, boys, what? To be focused on national and political restoration is a wrong emphasis. We're never going to get the church off the ground. <laughs> We've only got a few days, boys. I'm sending the Holy Spirit, we've got to launch this thing, and if that's your focus, it's not going to happen. Get your eyes off your nation, said God. Do you think he might be saying that to us a little bit? Guys, get your eyes off of your nation. Forget national restoration. 
because there's something coming. What if they hadn't? I mean, their faith would have been destroyed in 70 AD. Titus comes in and totally dismantles Jerusalem. The nation was invaded just in 70 AD. 70 years later, it's invaded and destroyed. No, 35 years later. So we have to know the God that is sovereign, not just making America great and enlarging it. He's the sovereign God (laughs) that destroys things. He dismantles things. He disperses people. And we have to say, God, would you please in this process somehow cleanse me from the toxins of nationalistic thinking only? Sever my emotional ties to all that is temporal because this is eternal, everybody. What's happening right now, you're sitting in a chair, but something eternal is being built in you, the church. God's building something for eternal purposes in us in this hour. And there's always going to be redemptive purpose. Yeah, we're in the middle of a pandemic. This has been the worst year of my life. But you know what? Behind every sovereign act of God is his heart of redemption. What motivates God is the saving of souls, the redemption of people. That's what he lives for. So they point, (laughs) Jesus points them back to the sovereignty of God, and then he redefines power for them, just in case, see, they're still hung up on the power of Rome. So what he does, (laughs) he says, listen, guys, you understand power to have the natural ability to have natural authority, armies, politics, all these things. And they wanted God to exercise his sovereign rulership into natural rulership. That's what they were thinking. Jesus totally redirects them from the political to the spirit, to the spirit realm. He says, the Holy Spirit's coming, guys. You better be looking for the Holy Spirit to come because that's where true power comes. That's what he said. You will receive power. He says, there's no power. You're leaving, Jesus. You have all the power. We're little weak earthlings down here, and Rome is still here. There's soldiers all around. There's oppression. He says, guys, you don't understand power, do you? You're going to receive power, true power, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Jesus defines power as that which exists inside the human, inside the heart of man, right? If you've got the Holy Spirit in you, you're one of the most powerful humans on the planet. You don't have to be in the Capitol building here or in Washington or anywhere. You have power because it comes from God, an experience with God. These were simple men. Some of these guys could have really loved living in Montana. They loved to fish and hunt. They were just outdoorsmen, simple men, hailed from this obscure region, you know, in the northern region, little small colony. Most people never heard of them. Can I ask you a question? Who was the mayor of Jerusalem in 70 AD when Titus came in and destroyed it? Who was the mayor? Well, we don't know the mayor. You'd have to look it up, right? You'd have to Google it, right? We don't know the mayor of Jerusalem, a man in political power at the time, but you know what? You know the name of all those 12 guys. We don't know their last name necessarily. They were sons of. We know Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and Peter, and James, and John. We know all those guys. Why? Because they were filled with power. Who had the real power? They did, of course. And our faith is tied to that, everybody. Our faith is tied to the history of nations rising and falling and, and church history and nation's history. The release of power is the same thing our brothers got. Our ancient brothers, we got the same power. 
It's not some strange power that came on the day of Pentecost. It's still here today, and Jesus had to remind them. You want true power, boys? Let me tell you, you're going to receive dunamis power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. True power, the ability to hear God's voice and then obey him, carry out what he wants. You know, the reason why I wrote the book, honestly, is like a lot of people like to hear prophecy, but they don't want to do it. Why? Well, first of all, there's resistance. The devil hates prophecy. He hates a prophetic word. He hates a word from God. So he's going to do all he can to push you onto his battlefields of doubt and delay and misunderstanding, all the ones that... But you know what? The thing of it is, when you posture yourself in your spirit and say, I'm going to do what God said. And you've got to understand this. When God tells you to do something, he supplies power to do it. He's not an unkind God. He says, I want you to do something which is impossible. It's kind of impossible, but he says, I will empower you to do it. God's word carries power for execution. That's why when you preach the gospel to somebody, you got to leave it up to God's word to change their heart. The gospel has its own power. You just preach it. Our job, we're the delivery boys, the delivery girls. Deliver the gospel. Let God do the power lifting, right? God's moving us towards his completion. We're going to complete something eventually. There will be a finishing generation, and God's moving the church there, and it doesn't look the way we thought it was going to look. So he says, guys, let me redefine true power. And then he does this. He reminds them that they were called to partnership with him. Partnership. He says, don't forget, you're not alone. You're not alone in this. Notice what he says. And you, verse 8, will be my witnesses. Got to remind ourselves sometimes. We're his witnesses. He's not our witness. Come on. We're his witnesses. He's saying, come on, guys. Ignore all your political hopes and dreams. I'm calling you to a greater level of spiritual partnership with me. You are my witnesses. What does that mean? God claims ownership of all the actions. When we take action, God owns it. And he he said, I can't do this if all you're thinking about is national restoration. You know there's a lot of church people... I didn't say this in the first service because they couldn't have handled it. But I know you can handle this. But there's a lot of church people <laughs> who's, uh, they're trying to function more like diplomats of the Department of State than somebody sent under true spiritual authority to reach the nations of the earth that are they're rife with all kinds of unchecked nationalism. It's not just an American thing. The nations of the earth, there's all this unchecked nationalism that is driving people into frenzies and thinking that we've got to become some kind of an extension of the Department of State to get anything done. We are God's people. You will be my witnesses. Because that is what was contradictory in the instructions of Christ. We're to be his witnesses. So he commissioned them to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers and, and disciples. And they were sent under divine authority. So you know what? This is a day of heightened partnership with God. It's not getting weaker, everybody. God is calling, drawing us closer to him. He's strengthening our partnership with the divine. It is not a time to look for political solutions. It's a time to strengthen your relationship with the sovereign God. He's got a plan for the nations. And there has to be a people that have been built as strong, robust, bounce back, rubber ball Christians. You know what a rubber ball Christian is? You drop them, they bounce right back up. They don't shrink in a day when God is busy assaulting unseen power structures. God's doing stuff like he's always done. 
And it's not because, oh, I, it's, it's gone too far now. I have to step in in sovereignty. No, God sets it all. He set up Pharaoh. He set him up for a big fall. He allowed all that. He set him up. The great Egyptian empire, he set it all up. And then he came in and began to dismantle it. He sent Moses in and sent plagues. He started just dismantling and disrupting a power structure so that his true power could be shown. So that what? He could show us an example of his plan to save the great exit. I know God's getting us ready for a great exit, everybody. We're going to get out of here someday. You ought to just want to take your mask off and shout and dance. But anyway, we're going to get out of here someday. Jesus is coming back. There will be a final exit, and it ain't going to look like we think it's going to look. God's going to do just like he did. He will assault power structures, dismantle it, and show and display his glory, bring his people out, take us to where he wants us to be. And we got to realize this is a divine partnership with God for the nations. And finally... He spoke about the nations. He says, you will be my witnesses, where? Right here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and watch this. He drops the global word on them and to the uttermost parts of the, of the earth. Basically, he said, guys, what? This thing's going global. They didn't even sure what a globe was. That's why he didn't use the word global. They didn't have Google Earth yet. See, the singular focus on one nation for them was completely canceled by Jesus' statement. He expanded the call to the ends of the earth. I think that's just mind-blowing, especially when they didn't even understand what the borders were. They didn't understand what a continent was. They just didn't get it because they were going, what about our nation? What about Israel? He says, here's the answer for Israel. What? Go global. We are the first completely globally connected generation to ever live on planet earth. Do you realize that? What a privilege. Do you realize how special we are? Well, also the Bible says, to whom much is given, what? Much is required. That's why God says, I've given you all these tools, now go global. Guess what? We've gone super global in the last six months. We've gone global. It's like, God says, I've given you this internet, and you're really not using it the way, God says, I'm moving you into new places of declaration new systems of distribution. I did a two-night prophetic presbytery in South Africa with Paul Simpson's group sitting at my desk at home. What? Yeah. Sweatpants from here down. Socks, sweatpants, nice shirt up here. Prophesying over little rectangulars on a screen of people I'd never seen before in South Africa. What's your name? Okay. What's the Lord saying? Boom. Going global from my, my study at home. It's because God said, this is my plan, everybody. I've commissioned you with global authority, said to the disciples, because the kingdom of God is one transcendent nation. It's one nation. That's why when they were getting focused on just their nation, Jesus goes, stop, guys. The kingdom is one nation, God's people, with authentic apostolic initiatives that are going to be coming. Do you know that God didn't shut down missions? I'll say it again. God has not shut down missions, Okay. The apostolic thrust of the kingdom has not been shut down. If we have to use the internet, we use the internet. Whatever it takes to reach, because that's what Jesus said. You'll be my witnesses, and it's going to go global, global teams. So, are you ready? What's God saying? Let's recap it real quick. Four statements. He's saying to this. Same thing he said to the early disciples. Number one, shift your focus. In this hour, you've got to shift your focus off of nationalistic thinking over cultural strongholds over more mortal views of everything. Can't get your eyes down here. You've got to lift up your eyes. Shift your focus. Receive power from the Holy Spirit. If you have to, do it every day. 
We leak, you know. <laughs> We're kind of leaky. The world and everything else is trying to suck the power of the Holy Spirit right out of you. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 5, what? Be filled, which in the Greek means be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. Just keep, keep getting those hands up there. <sighs> Come on, Lord, fill me. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Receive power. Come into a greater sense of partnership with him. That's why he said to the disciples, I'm going to be with you always. Because you have the Holy Spirit, you're in divine partnership. Don't forget that. Don't forget that tomorrow morning when you go off to work or wherever you go to school, wherever you do, you're in partnership. You're his witness. And don't forget, he says, look what I'm doing in the nations. Look what I'm doing in the nations. Don't forget, God is a global God, and we're just still a big part of that. The primary task of your leaders, and by the way, you've got great leaders. We had a two-day elders retreat, and I'm going to tell you, you've got great elders here. Give a hand for your elders. Come on, they are great, great men with great wives. They'd actually be worthless without their wives. We all know that. They are great men. And I just so had such a great time hearing their heart. They have such a heart for you. They're men of prayer. They're men of vision. Get up for JR. He's the visionary. Come on, JR and Janie. Thank you for serving the house in this. This has been the hardest time to pastor a church in our generation, honestly. And I've talked to dozens of pastors around the world over the last six or seven months. It's one of the hardest seasons. Keep praying for, for JR and Janie and these elders and their wives and, and, and the staff because we're care. I, I likened to this as like in March, somebody walked up to all the pastors and handed them a 25-pound anvil and said, here, carry on. <laughs> Just carry this around. It's like they're all walking around with this extra weight and pressure and unknown and all this. But these are men of prayer and women of prayer. And keep praying for your pastor and the, the, the leaders here because God is empowering them. And God wants to build not just good leaders. He wants to build a, a, a really a, a robust people of faith. That's why they do what they do. So that's why Jason and Rebecca are getting a bigger house, so they can have you over, build you up. That's the only reason why. Not kind of. Because their kids are driving them nuts, and they all need their own bedroom, finally. I'm kidding. But I mean, that's, see, the heart of these guys are like, we, we want to get people in. We want to gather them. We want to build strong people here in Mount Helena, because we're going to build people that will live through crisis, not be subject to it. Get through the crisis. Listen, it's chicken little. It's not Paul. You know, chicken little is like, the sky is falling. The sky is falling. That's where some people are. They're over in the corner with a box of clean. I say, when's this going to go over? You're going to make America great again? Oh, God, just wake me up when it's over. No, it's Paul Revere. Come on. Jesus is coming, and we've got a message to save. That's what God wants. Proclamation. New areas of Proclamation. We're fulfilling the promises of God that there will be a powerful end-time church that's going to take us out in a good way. Are you ready for that? Can you see what God wants for you? <laughs> it is good, everybody. It's good for Mount Helena. God's going to have a powerful church that's going to re represent him, and people are going to be saying, what is your secret? How do you keep it together? Why do, you, how, what, do you have any answers for me? Go, yes, we do. Come on, people are going to be wondering how you're still doing what you do. Because you have the gospel. You have the good news. Are you ready for some good news? You ready to take it out? I said it in the other service because we sensed it prophetically as elders. God's got some things to do right here in Helena. I talked to a lot of global stuff. I realize that because that is the heart of God. But you know what? God loves Helena. <laughs> and you're in a season where there's so many needs now in this city. You just be, I know the elders are all, they got a hold of that. They're like, yeah, we got, ooh. They're all like, let's find out what God wants to do right here. Not exclusively, but God's going to open doors of opportunity to meet the needs of people. 
There's a lot of hurting people right here in this city, and you are the answer. You're going to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We all know that. You're going to be the answer. and People are going to just be going, thank God for Mount Helena Community Church. Let's stand to your feet. Let's pray. Let's grab hold of what Jesus told his early disciples. Come on, everybody. This is what he said. It's not for you to know. God is sovereign. Don't worry about it, but you shall receive power with the Holy Spirit. Everybody lift your hands. Antennas up. Come on, antennas up. Do, 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 do. There you go. We're connecting to, a, to the signal. There you go. We got a good full four bars. Signals up. Father, fill us right now afresh with the Holy Spirit. Send us fresh oil. Give us oil in our lamps. We can want to burn bright in these days for a lost and hurting world, but a lost and hurting Helena. There's lost and hurting people right here. God, expand our hearts. Fill us with the Holy Spirit. Let us know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are with us. Strengthen our partnership with you, almighty God, and send us. Send us, oh God. Send us on your kingdom mission so that you get all the glory and we get the absolute joy. I want to prophesy over you that 2021 is going to be a year that you will experience and you will demonstrate what we call in the Bible the joy of the Lord. We're coming into Christmas. Some of you are just greedy. You still got your hands up. You can, you can put them down, but some of you I know is like, no, I'm not done yet. That's why I keep them up if you want to. Coming into a crazy the holiday season, people are going to lose their joy because they're focusing on earthly joy. You can be the ones to tell them there's a greater joy, right? The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Go spread the joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.